1961 was the very first year in Grand Prix of mid-engine cars. Ferrari was a little bit ahead of the game. You know, that single-seater open-wheel thing is just awesome. Everybody has that dream, like, I wonder what it's like to drive that. And I wanted to know. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for joining me. And don't forget to follow the show, click that five-star rating, leave me a review, and finally share the show with your friends. Okay, we're going to get right into it today. My guest is Brandon Hegedus. He built his own 1962 Ferrari Type 156 Shark Nose Formula One car. And he didn't do it in some high-tech shop with a full staff. He did it by himself in his garage in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Guaranteed, it's one of the coolest car stories you'll ever hear. And it's coming up right after this. Horsepower Heritage is celebrating its first anniversary, and I'm teaming up with Model Citizen Diecast to give away a 143rd scale model of the new mid-engine Chevrolet Corvette C8. And here's what you have to do to enter. Step 1. On Instagram, follow both Horsepower Heritage and Model Citizen Diecast. Step 2. On the Horsepower Heritage Instagram page, look for the yellow Corvette in my posts. Step 3. In the comments on that post, tag both Horsepower Heritage and Model Citizen Diecast. And finally, tag two friends. That's it. Follow us, tag us in the comments on that post, and then tag two friends. One winner will be selected at random. The contest ends August 15th, 2021 at midnight Pacific time. And for all sorts of collector-grade scale models, from race cars to 4x4s, visit ModelCitizenDieCast.com. They stock high-quality products from 143rd scale all the way up to the ginormous 18th scale masterpieces from the Amalgam Collection. Use the code HERITAGE at checkout for 10% off your order. Limitations apply. Model Citizen Diecast, because your inner child still wants to play with cars. And now, my interview with Brandon Hegedus, right here on Horsepower Heritage. Brandon Hegedus, thanks for joining me today. Uh, you're in Calgary, and you built a Ferrari Tipo 156 Formula One replica. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I did. <laughs> so, first of all, it's amazing that anyone attempts this out of their garage. I'm super impressed. Let's talk first about the original Tipo 156 Shark Nose. This is a legendary car. All right, so for people who aren't familiar with this car, the Tipo 156 was Ferrari's first mid-engine Formula One car. Prior to this car being produced, uh, Ferrari was starting to lag behind in Formula One. So in 1961, Ferrari built the Tipo 156, driven famously by Phil Hill and uh, Wolfgang von Trips, his teammate. Phil Hill winning the Drivers' Championship, the first American to do so in Formula One. And uh, so the Tipo 156 originally had a 1.5 liter V6. It's a 120 degree V6, revs to 10,000 RPM. And uh, as far as I know, there are no Tipo 156 cars still in existence from the period. And there are other replicas besides yours. So as far as I understand it, 1961 was the very first year in Grand Prix of mid-engine cars. And of course, there were some changes that year. Ferrari was a little bit ahead of the game. This car was already somewhat designed by Carlo Chitti and running in Formula 2 class. And so when the rules changed, 
they just kind of looked across to Formula 2 and said, hey, we already have that platform ready to go. So they just moved it over into Formula 1. And of course, because they were ahead of the game, they had an advantage there. Yeah, that's how I understand the program developed too. And I I am not a Ferrari expert. I will never pretend to be. Some Ferrari expert is going to be very aggravated listening to this. Oh, (laughs) 100%. But it's all good, right? So we're just having fun. My understanding is that uh, there was a factory policy at Ferrari at the time that once these cars were done racing, they were destroyed. Is that right? From what I can find through my research, Enzo loved the new cars. Once it was last year's race car, it was just last year's race car. I mean, we look at these as amazing vintage machines. There's history there. For him, his idea on it was, who cares? It's last year's race car, whether it won or lost, doesn't matter, you know, next season. And so with these cars, the reason they were destroyed from from what I can find, there's a lot of folklore, nobody really knows. But after Enzo's son's death, his wife started to hang around the factory quite a bit more. Enzo became uh, a bit more quiet and things. And I guess a lot of the engineers, a lot of the workers didn't like her being around, her kind of, you know, having her say in things. And so they approached Enzo and said, hey, I, you got to get her out of here. She's making this hard for us. And he, of course, said, no, forget you guys. She's, she's here and that's just how it's going to be. You got to deal with it. So Carlo... And I believe eight other engineers said, fine, we're out. And they left and they, they began working on their own racing team, which of course, because they had designed the engines, the chassis, of course, their, their technology, that stuff they have in their heads and on paper, they're going to essentially continue with that program. And so the next season, here's Ferrari, who would have been racing Carlo's cars, essentially against Carlo's cars which of course, had he lost to them, that would be devastating to the reputation, to the team. And so in my opinion, that is the reason that he said, scrap them, scrap everything to do with that season, with those cars, the plans, the engines, the chassis, the bodies, scrap it. It never happened. That's a great theory. And that whole episode is famously known as the palace coup. That's right. And one of the primary guys who left during this whole debacle was Giotto Bizzarini. Right. And at this point, he was halfway through designing the 250 GTO. Yeah, pretty amazing. And Enzo was famous for, you know, being dictatorial. He wouldn't listen to others. So let's talk about the mid-engine configuration. And what Apparently, Enzo was opposed to this originally. Yeah, Enzo's classic line is, you don't put the horse behind the cart. And so the engineers fought him and fought him on this and wanted to try it. And he was totally against it for a while and finally gave in and said, fine, you think you can do it? It's a waste of time, but sure, try it. And they did. And they never really looked back. So I know this isn't your first build. And I want to talk to you about why the 156. But first, let's talk about kind of how you cut your teeth building cars. There's another car you have called Old Number 5. Is that right? The Paper Bag Princess. Yeah. Let's talk about that car. <laughs> Uh, the Paper Bag Princess is a 1929 Ford Model A Speedster. It's similar in to the early Speedsters, like a board track racer, uh, 1920s type race car, like a Model T, but it's very low. I think it's four and a half inches off the ground. I run motorcycle tires on it. It's got a, a 1.3 liter Mazda rotary engine in it. So it has its, it has its modern touches, of course, but from the outside, it looks like an antique speedster. 
And by the way, why do you call it the paper bag princess? <laughs> there was a beautiful show car in the 1960s called the Pineapple Princess. And so my play on that was to call this the paper bag princess because the, the body is burlap. It's, it's kind of rough. It's very what you would see in the 1920s built in a garage and then taken out and raced on the dirt tracks or the board tracks. Did you uh, stretch burlap over a wood frame or something? I, I actually used tape. So I, I built the, I don't even know if you can call it a body. It's, there's framework. It's almost like body support. So there's framework underneath and then there's the radiator in the, or the grill shell in the front. And so to get the shape, I took masking tape and taped from the front to, uh, to essentially the, the dash hoop, I suppose you'd call it. And I just taped and stretched tape as tight as I could all the way around the whole thing. And then I laid fiberglass over that to make sure that I was, I was going to get a perfect fit and a perfect form between the grill shell and the, and the main cowling hoop. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's crude but effective, right? Right. It's probably not unlike the way that a lot of coach builders have worked for decades. I mean, there are fancy ways to do this. I mean, there are, there are proper ways. There are fancy ways. There are expensive ways. There's per, there are production ways. But that's not to say that these classic old ghetto ways don't still work and can't still be pulled off in a home garage. And that was part of the, the allure of this car, the Ferrari, is that back in that time, in the 60s, they were doing this with um, paper blueprints and you know, hand measuring things and hand forming things with aluminum and of course the best materials that they had at the time. Well, technology has moved so far that in a home garage, I can get carbon fiber. I can get aluminum. I can mill a lot of things on a small lathe. I can, you know, like a motorcycle engine, which is what's in this car, has so much technology in it that it's leaps and bounds above even what they were doing at that time with the highest tech they had. And so with the help of things like that they could have never had, like AutoCAD uh, or carbon fiber and things like this, I can produce in a home garage more technology than they, they even had available to them. Yeah, pretty amazing. All right, so the paper bag princess isn't your first build, obviously. Right, I've got, I, I've built a few before this. I started with uh, the first car I built from scratch uh, was a 1927 Ford Model T with uh, 5.9 Cummins. And I learned a lot with that car because one, I needed to have a really strong frame for the engine, which I knew that right off the bat. But when you start throwing every hundred dollars, I threw at that engine and every weekend I'd throw at that engine was like another hundred horsepower. And so it got out of control real fast. And next thing you know, I started to blow up the jag rear end that was in it and uh, snap the input shaft in the transmission and, blow the torque converter out of it and snap flex plates and things. So I, so, you know, I, as I built up, um, so I changed the rear end to a four link rear end. So I learned, learned a bunch about that geometry. And, and then of course that transferred over into this car with suspension geometry. And as I learned about that, I realized, Oh, this is all kind of the same geometry just turned front and back rather than side to side with a four link. And so I, then going from that diesel car, I built a roadster for my brother, a nice small little roadster. And that I realized between the diesel car, which was a heavy, massively powerful machine to this little 140 horsepower roadster, 
I, that was lighter and nimble. And I thought, oh, wow, this is, this is actually a nicer car to drive. It doesn't scare you to, to breathe on the throttle of this car. You could drive it full tilt and it was never going to hurt you. Again, just nice. Like it's not a rocket ship, but it's it's quick, it's nimble, uh, it's really light. And again, I thought that's beautiful. Like the Europeans, they've got something here. Like it's not just throwing the biggest engine in the dumbest, worst engineered frame that you can, which is what I had done with the diesel car. You know, it's it's refinement. And of course, everybody loves indie cars. Everybody loves formula cars that you know that single seater open wheel thing it's just awesome everybody has that dream like i wonder what it's like to drive that and i wanted to know so i started looking at you know if i was going to push myself be i want to push myself beyond i want to push myself out of rat rods essentially and see what i can do i kind of just fell out of love with the rat rod scene the hot rod scene everything had kind of been done i felt and so as i as I looked around for another project, I wanted to do something extreme. And so I started looking around at vintage cars that you know might pique my interest. Of course, if you're going to spend years of your life working on it, I don't want to fall out of love with the project halfway through. And so I just started scrolling pictures of vintage race cars. And as I'm looking at these pictures, of course, I'm looking at, can I replicate the wheels? Can I replicate the tires? Can I... Uh, like, what does the bodywork look like? I mean, you look at the bodywork of uh, a 330P4. There's some super intense curves on that. It's a, a gorgeous car. But could I pull that off in a home garage, like molds and everything? I don't know. Not for my first car. So I needed something that looked doable. I also needed a car that had a covered engine because, of course, if I can't match that engine, I can't have it exposed. Like a Lotus 49. I love a 67 Lotus 49, but again, if you can't match that exposed DFV, it's just not going to look right. So I finally came across the 156 and I thought it's got the closed engine. It's absolutely beautiful. And I thought to myself, yeah, that body looks doable. <laughs> I thought that's got curves that I could probably, probably do. And, and then as I read into the, I started reading into the history about it and as i learned some history about it and that they had crushed them all and that there was all this folklore behind it and there was so much history there i just that's when i was hooked there was just something about that that was like wow okay uh, this is the car i need to do yeah you couldn't have picked a more iconic formula car i mean the thing is so striking the nose alone you know i mean it's uh, so distinctive and then later on i think they changed to a f much more conventional nose for what the 63 season i think yeah, for a little bit. They could call it the arrow. Right. So I got into building this car, of course, with a hot rod type background. And so in my head, I just thought, oh, just, you know, similar to a hot rod, just nicer, fancier. I just need to spend a bit more time refining my parts and stuff. And as I got going on it, about halfway through, I would say right around the time that the chassis was pretty well finished and I was starting to look at the body to make sure I could mold the body and make the body that would fit over that chassis and that I hadn't screwed myself with my sizes and stuff. I, I contacted a coach builder in the UK who had worked with two of the recreations of this car and asked him, you know, here's what I'm doing. Here's kind of some of my measurements. These are what I think the measurements are based on scale rulers, old photographs. 
um, you know, people standing next to the car proportions. Would you say I'm correct in that? And he, uh, he came back to me with some information that really at that point I was like, Oh, I am way over my head here. Like there is something about this car. This is not a hot rod. Like I'm, I'm stepping into that European world of cars that has so much more pedigree and so much more heart, I would say. And I mean, some might be offended at that. Some, (laughs) some North Americans, but so much more heart than we're used to here in North America. And I kind of stressed all day about that until I got home from work and I, and I started measuring the car based on some of the information that he had given me and my measurements and his measurements versus essentially Ferrari's measurements or what, what him and I could both gather. Cause of course he didn't have exact specs either. We were diff. We were, we were about a quarter inch different in almost every measurement within a quarter of an inch in, t- in all of my sizes. And so at that point, then I kind of sighed a sigh of relief of, okay, he's done it this way. I'm doing it this way. And for a large degree, Ferrari was doing it that way at the time. I, I would say at that point, that's where it changed the game for me to realize I am way over my head. I can't butcher this. To butcher this is butchering a legacy. Wow. That must have been a really complex feeling, you know, emotionally. I absolutely I I I couldn't wait to get home to measure the chassis to see if if my bodywork measurements were going to fit over the chassis. And so I got home and of course I'm oh you're always expecting the worst, right? And so I get home and I'm measuring it all out and slowly slowly that relief is coming as i measure and it's like okay this measurement is perfect this measurement is perfect this one is within a quarter inch this one is within you know an eighth of an inch okay i think this is going to work and i think somehow i nailed it so what you're telling me is at that point you had a tube frame chassis already built yes at this point i had already i had built a tube frame chassis and it was sitting on a frame table in my garage. And there's no going back at this point. I've got, I, I've got half the build invested in this. Now, did you mock it up before you actually built the, the frame? Not really. I had built a frame table. I had laid out measurements on that frame table and then essentially started bending tube and really was just winging it. <laughs> That's awesome. That's so cool. Well, I mean, as you said, like you really didn't know how deep you had gone. Like you, you really, you didn't know what you didn't know. Right. Yeah. I had, cause I had thoughts in the beginning, like, I mean, my garage is not huge. This is a 22 by 22 garage. And I mean, I'm not like some wealthy guy. Like I'm your average father of four kids, husband, like carpenter. Like I'm nothing fancy. I'm, I'm a nobody in this. And so there was no real major planning. There was no planning like, okay, I'm going to build this exact. At the time, it was maybe I build it six inches shorter to fit the garage a little better. Or maybe I build it a little bit narrower or, you know, maybe a hot, essentially maybe I hot rod it a little bit. And at that point, I was glad I didn't, I hadn't resto modded or compromised the overall car with those, with those early thoughts. 
about changing its shape, its size, its its overall look and stance. Yeah, I I can totally understand that. Well, I mean, you know how these projects go. Your thoughts drift. Your your plans change. I mean, yeah, you have a budget to work with, but it's not like you have a team of people that's depending on you. It's just you. So sometimes you're flexible and and things shift in your head, but you can get off track. Yeah. Yeah. And there were, and there's definitely some things in the car. Like uh, I chose not to cover the seat. The original seats were covered. They were aluminum. I chose to build my seat out of carbon fiber and, and Kevlar. And I chose not to cover it partly because it was quite costly. All the places I went to, to talk about that with, it was quite costly. And so I did it in a, in a blue carbon Kevlar and crushed or um, forged carbon. So, you know, and my fuel tank obviously is behind the seat rather than in the, in the side side fuel pods like the originals would have been. Obviously, the drive line is different. So, is the body mostly carbon fiber? The body is, I would say, ninety five percent carbon fiber. There's a little bit of fiberglass on it, just because there were certain areas with really intricate compound curves that that I was only going to be able to get you know, here in my home garage without vacuum bagging, I was only going to be able to get those with uh chop strand fiberglass. So the, the flange around the windshield, that's chop strand fiberglass, the flanges around the, uh, around the bubbles in the back, that's chop strand, the, that intricate scoop, kind of that integrated, uh, kind of interesting, complicated looking scoop on the, on the front in front of the windshield, that's fiberglass. But that's about it. Everything else on the car is carbon fiber. Carbon fiber is basically like fiberglass, right? You have a sheet of carbon and you lay resin over it? Yeah, it works in a very similar way. It cuts differently. It bends differently. It takes curves differently. But essentially, yeah, it's, it's similar to working with fiberglass. So let's talk about, for example, the nose. Did you build uh, a buck or a mold? Yeah, so the the entire I'll try and explain this and yeah, hope you know, hopefully listener listeners can picture this. So I, I bought a giant brick of styrofoam, I, you know, like 14 feet long, I think three and a half feet wide, two and a half, three feet tall, thick. And I laid out the shape of the body on it, essentially drew on you know the tops, the sides, front, and then I made a hot wire. And a friend and I cut out then with the hot wire, cut out the foam to that general shape. But of course, it's now st- it's still it's still a square essentially, right? It's flat sides, flat top and bottom. And so now I need to put all these compound curves into it. And so at that point, it's now essentially a carving with files and rough sandpaper, and uh, again with the hot wire essentially carving this car into a large cigar type shape. And again, making sure, first of all, that your proportions are correct, making sure that it's parallel left to right, making sure that you haven't screwed up the shape uh, and then making sure mainly that it's going to fit over the chassis, which is already built, which is really hard to measure when your chassis is, you know, got kind of square edges and things that you can measure versus the body that's nothing but compound curves. There's no straight lines on it. And so that was the biggest worry was, am I going to build this thing and carve this thing? And then 
mold it all and and pop it out in carbon and go to put it over the chassis and it doesn't fit it's too small like that was a huge concern for me because again the only thing that was done in cad was my suspension geometry for the you know in the chassis work everything else was just totally on the fly pulling it off you know looking at old photos um you know this will work that'll work this won't work so at this point now it's that same kind of guesswork but i've got a ton of money and time invested in this other portion over here which i don't want to cut apart <laughs> if this doesn't fit and also you have to account for the thickness of the the bodywork right so yes so the mold has to be shaped and carved down to a dimension that matches the final thickness yeah so i have to account for there's the outside measurement and then a few millimeters smaller i mean it's only a few millimeters but it's a few millimeters smaller and that's the inside and that's the part that may or may not touch the chassis so at this point i have this giant styrofoam cigar essentially there's no detail to it there's nothing it's just it's just the overall outline general shape there's no scoops there's no anything and of course resin uh, fiberglass resin will melt this styrofoam so i need to seal this i need to coat it first and and fine sand it to get it down to a nice smooth finish so i cover the whole thing with drywall mud and at this point this is where i can see spots that are too high too low i use spray foam to kind of build things up you know you carve some things down you you get it to a point where you, I stopped and looked at it for a couple of weeks and thought, okay, like this area is bothering me. I need to bring this down or that down or bring this up. So, and then I cover the whole thing in drywall mud, which takes forever to dry when you're trying to do it like this, which is really annoying. And so again, and then, and then sanding, I sand this drywall mud and hopefully you don't burn through the drywall mud back to the foam. Cause again, now you have to start over in that area. So once, once that's all done, I painted the whole thing, I sealed it. And at this point, now that it's got a ton of coats of uh, paint on it, it's sealed, it's the shape I want. Uh, you don't touch it, of course, because just, uh, you know, people would come to my garage to, you know, see the car or to pick things up or whatever. And of course, it's just human nature. You want to rub your hand across this nice, shiny thing oh what's this you know and you rub it like ah, don't touch it don't touch it if you put a dent in that that's like another week of evenings for me to flush that out perfectly right not to mention you've got four kids that are probably in and out of your garage constantly oh all the time all the time and that was the biggest thing like girls don't touch it if you come in the garage don't touch anything and there was a there was a i mean it sat like that for quite a while again like that's going to be my shape so if i'm not happy with something and i've already molded it that's what it's going to be so i actually sat on that for a couple of months before i did the molds to make sure that there was no turning back i was happy with every angle every compound curve everything so at that point then finally when i was ready i have to mold this in separate sections because it needs to be it needs to come apart these molds need to come apart so they need flanges bolting flanges in areas that are not going to lock it in. So I had to have a flange around the nose, a flange around the tail, and then uh, I think I did two flanges down, down kind of the upper corners of the car, if you will, down the length of it. And, and so that way I could unbolt everything after and 
and it wasn't going to get locked into the mold. So for the flanges, again, on that one, I kind of sat on it forever. Like, how am I going to do this? I don't want to glue anything to it because anything I glue to it needs to come off when the next mold needs to get made against that. And so, and I don't want to have to, I don't want to have to clean anything up. It's much easier to clean up a plug or a buck than it is to clean up a mold. And so what I ended up doing was using playing cards. I waxed the whole thing so that my silicone essentially would come off, would pop off easily. And then I silicone playing cards to it as like a rib down the length of the car or like around the nose. This became my flange. And then I fiberglass, let's say that one section. So the nose, fiberglass, the nose with that flange around it. And then I was able to take the playing cards off and then wax that flange, wax the body, and then do the next one and do the next one. And then finally when it's done, I had all these flanges with no playing cards in them. And when it was all done, I was able to pop it all apart and take the foam out. And then I was able to take the molds with the foam out now. Of course, you have to clean them up a bunch and then bolt them all back together. And now I have a hollow mold that I can flip over and, and start laying carbon inside of. This is really hard to visualize. <laughs> but, but luckily, you have documented this entire process on your Instagram. Yeah. So people can listen to this episode and, and listen to your description and follow along if they look at your Instagram, which is, how is that street legal? Yes. Yeah. And I wasn't going to do an Instagram in the beginning. To be honest, I always hated Instagram and the hashtags and, you know, I thought that was so dumb. But when I started talking about doing this build, there were so many people that said, oh, I, I, I want to follow along. I want to like, will you post this to Facebook or will you, you know, like, where are you going to do a build thread? And I thought, man, I spend my time in the garage on the car. Like, I don't have time to go in the house and edit YouTube videos and, you know, all this content and stuff. Like, and somebody said, well, Instagram is just a quick a picture, a little caption, you know, do it like that. And yeah, you know, okay, fine. I'll do it. And, and I'm really glad I did because people just started coming out of the woodwork. Like, I mean, that's how I met these, like so many people in the UK and, you know, people who have been involved with the other recreations in the UK of, of this car. And people who are able to give advice on, on things or just, and just the overall support, you know, like there were definitely times in this build where you get frustrated and you're like, I'm done. I'm, I'm sick of this car. Like, I don't care that I'm going to throw away thousands of dollars. Like I'm done. I want to walk away. And the stress is not worth it. Like cut this thing up, cut it up, throw it in the scrap. But you know, like you just can't do that when you have that, that almost like imaginary support there. And, and it was really helpful. There was a lot of, not just the people and the, the great people I've met through it, but that support for the build. Well, yeah, I mean, you've got this whole crowd of people cheering for you now and you can't disappoint them. You got to follow through. <laughs> right. There was, uh, there was at one point, I forget, I forget what it was. There was one point. I think I had voiced some frustration or something and, and somebody commented, like, if you do that, there's going to be 3,000 people that are really mad at you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you put it out there, you, you, can't, you have to deliver. 
Right. And a bit of that was a bit of that is stressful too, because, you know, like, do I get to a point where I'm just done with it? And I, I decide to not carry on and I just close my account and just ghost everybody. <laughs> yeah. Whatever happened to that guy that was building that Ferrari? Yeah, totally. Oh, that's hilarious. Well, I mean, your pictures are awesome, by the way. And, uh, you know, it's like step by step, you can see how you're working through the problems. And I'm sure there were a lot of people that were um, offering advice and suggestions along the way. And um, a lot of which were probably just in your DMs, you know, it was just kind of private people that were reaching out to you. Yeah, there was a little bit, not actually a ton, but, uh, you know, just things I, I mean, it's my first time working with carbon fiber. So there's a lot of stuff I didn't really know. You know, somebody messaged me and said, hey, just so you know, if you're putting aluminum rivets in stuff, you need to make sure that you don't put them directly against carbon and things. Carbon will eat aluminum. Like, well, I didn't know that. That's good to know, right? Or, or you know, how carbon might change shape. But I'm curious about how the body is attached to the, to the frame. I mean, did you bond fasteners to the inside of the bodywork and then you have a, uh, a corresponding fastener on the frame? Or how does that work? Yeah, so the body's fastened just like the originals. It's fastened using Zeus fasteners, which let me tell you, that was a nightmare. If somebody were to ask me what was the hardest part of the car, it was getting those Zeus fasteners, uh, the body mounts of the Zeus fasteners lined up. Because, of course, on the body, those Zeus fasteners need to go in the same positions as the original cars. Well, underneath, how do I attach the Zeus fastener to its to the backside of itself, attached to its frame mount, and then reach my arm up in there with a welder torch and tack it to the frame in the right position. I can't because there's a body in my way. Like I, does that make sense? It makes total sense because you're working blind. Right. And, and I, and the car is not big. It's not like I can just climb under the car and reach up from underneath. Like it's closed. these panels and these panels flange over each other. So some of these fasteners are not just fastening one panel. They're fastening through another panel to hold that panel on as well. So like I say, you can't just reach from underneath or get under the car or over top of the car. Like it's all kind of to get your body lines and your gaps correct. It all has to go together at once essentially. And yeah, that was a nightmare. That was a complete nightmare and very hard to do, but I got it. And in the end, it was one of those areas. There's there there are a lot of areas on this car that I would say that there are straight up miracles. Getting the bodywork to lay perfectly, to to line up perfectly with perfect gaps the way it does, and to have those loose fasteners just clip into themselves with no struggle, that was one of those miracles. <laughs> so, how did you end up solving that problem of working blind? I mean, what, did you did you somehow figure out how to create a reference point for yourself on the frame? No, because even that wouldn't work because again, like these, they're sitting on a compound shaped frame and jutting out towards a compound shaped body panel. So there wasn't even a way to really reference, you know, okay, we'll tack it here and then I'll kind of bend it over to where, no, because I needed, I needed height, depth, uh, you know, like everything about it was just a, a total shot in the dark. But yeah, I think I, honestly, I don't really remember. <laughs> it's hard to explain. It was just, it was just one of those fights where it's just, 
back to the grinder, back to the grinder, trim hair off, trim hair off, trim hair off. Okay, that needs to be a slightly more angle. Okay, put it on the sander and sand that bracket just a hair more. Okay, you know, clip it in, hold it in that position. And I know that I'm going to burn my hand to do this and I need to close my eyes because I can't have a welding helmet on for this and just pop it with a tack with the MIG and hope you don't burn the carbon while you're doing it. And then hope that it's enough to stay as you take the body panels off, tack it in a little bit better, and then close it all back up again and hope it clips in the right spot. Oh, it doesn't? Okay, do that all over again. <laughs> oh my God, I would throw my welding helmet and shut the garage and go have a scotch or something. I don't know. <laughs> there, there was enough. Yeah, I would, I would say honestly that the body mounts probably took two weeks. It's probably two weeks of evenings to, to fight with the, the Zeus fasteners and, their, and their, their frame mounts, body mounts. So Brandon, would you do it all again? Absolutely. I mean, not with the same car because I've done it now and I want to move on to something else. But of course, I've got, I can't talk about it, but I've got, I've got plans in my brain that will make this look like a picnic. Oh. <laughs> and again, I don't know if that's, I don't know if I'm overshooting myself again. I guess we'll find out. But, but yeah, there'll, I hope to have, I hope to do it the next, whether it's directly the next or, you know, in the future, a couple of years. I, I, I plan to do a project that I'll look back on this one and think, remember that Ferrari? What a piece of garbage that was. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's going to be exciting. All right, so I want to talk about the drivetrain in this car because it's not like Ferrari V6s are laying around at the pick your part, right? I mean, I don't even know if there are any of those 1.5 liter V6s still in existence. Uh, there are two. Okay. There are two, and they are in the two recreations in the UK, and they are the only running engines of that type in the world. Yeah, so they're obviously priceless. Yeah. And then the gearbox, what, what gearbox was originally in the car? Was it a ZF or was it in-house? Oh, I don't even know. I don't even know. I think it was an in-house. Okay. And again, and again, even the gearbox, I believe those are the only two functional gearboxes as I, as I understand. Okay. So obviously those, those are off the table. So you got to figure out what I'm going to put in this. And, and I imagine that you had already decided on that before you started building the frame. I had, I, I went with the 1.3 liter Hayabusa engine uh, for a couple of reasons. I mean, obviously it's not even close to correct. You know, it sits the wrong direction in the car. It, it's a four cylinder, you know, it's a modern fuel injected engine. Like obviously when you crack the hood, it's, it's a bit of a disappointment, you know, with a vintage car, but it had the sound I wanted. It had the power band I wanted. It had the horsepower I wanted. Uh, and it had aftermarket. Another thing about it was you can get parts. I could build that engine up if I wanted to. So the engine has not been built, but it's been fully studded. It's got a, a heavy-duty output shaft in it. So it can take, if somebody wants to abuse this car someday and actually track it, then that can be done. It's not, it's not going to break the case. It's not going to overstress the engine. If somebody wanted to get crazy and put turbos in this thing, the internals stud wise and such would take it right but the the aftermarket for this engine was a big selling feature for me the knowledge out there of putting a hayabusa engine into 
just about any small car, that knowledge base is out there. It's been done. And so I wasn't going in blind in that regard. I was going in blind enough on this car. I, I thought I needed to ease myself up in one area at least. No, I think it's a smart choice. I mean, you're not having to write a new book. Uh, what about the gearbox? The gearbox is the original one from the Hayabusa. So it's a sequential six-speed. Perfect. Because you don't have a lot of room in the car. Right. And again, it comes back to that technology thing. I mean, back in that time, to have 185, 190 horse V6 at the time with the, with their gearbox. I mean, if you look at their gearbox, it was really long. It wasn't actually a stress member, but just about. And so when you look at that versus today, I mean, I can make the same power with a higher RPM with an internal gearbox that I can pick up. I mean, it's the size of a milk crate. So again, the, the technology has come so far. Yeah, it's not original, but that's not to say that I can't have even lighter weight, similar power, an awesome sound, an awesome power band to the car, six speeds rather than five. Obviously, you give up a lot when you don't have access to like a priceless engine, <laughs> but that's not to say that all is lost. And the, the Hayabusa revs to what, 15,000? 11. 11. Oh, that's, that's less than I thought, but... Yeah, I mean, it's the 600s that start getting up to like 15, 16, 17. Gotcha. And uh, the original Tipo 156 revved to about 10,000. So, yeah, I think it was 9,500, somewhere in there. Right. Um, and the sound, another thing I wanted was with the sound. Again, in the beginning, I wanted a vintage car with a modern type sound, a modern type formula sound. And again, a bike engine, that's where that sound's going to come from in any affordable range. Yeah, uh, no, I think the Hayabusa is a great choice. And like you said, the aftermarket is huge and mm -hmm. it's been done before. Do you have uh, rubber engine mounts or? They're solid. It's actually solid to the frame, just like the bike. Okay. So does that transmit a lot of vibration into the rest of the car? Not at all. Really? Not at all. Yeah. And that's that was one of the things I was surprised about is when driving the car, you know, you always expect, I guess from building the hot rods, I always expect a certain amount of engine noise, but no, no, not at all. And again, because it's a, I think because it's a Japanese bike engine, they're just, they're so smooth. Any of that, like this car is probably twice as smooth as the real ones. <laughs> yeah, probably. Probably. Right. The suspension is probably twice as good. And what was awesome. And again, this is another one of those miracles. The way I piped it, the way I did the exhaust and stuff. And then with the, the cone boom tubes that these cars had, when I fired the car up for the very first time and heard it, you know, and then you go back, there's not much video, but you can go back and find some rare videos of, of the original cars racing around the track and listen to them. And the sound is almost identical. Like, obviously it's not flawlessly identical, but it is, it is so close for a four cylinder for a modern four cylinder versus an old Ferrari V6. It is mind blowing how close the sound is. The car does not sound like a, bike engine in the least. And that's always one of the comments that people say when I fire up the car, you know, at a, at a show or somewhere that I've taken it is every comment is always, wow, you would never know that that is a bike engine. That sounds absolutely savage, just like a real vintage race car. That's really cool. Now, did you bend your own, um, exhaust headers? I kind of used what was already there. I split them. I split them and, and kind of, used what was already there and then changed a little bit 
here and there. I was able to actually split them and then swap them left to right. And then of course they pointed out rather than together. So the two banks, uh, like number one and number two run together, three and four run together out each left side, right side. Gotcha. I'm really interested in some of the other layout of the car because there's not a lot of room in the tow box, right? Right. You've got to have pedals up in there. Obviously, you've got to have a steering linkage, but your radiator's up there too, right? No, the radiator's in the back. Oh, so do you have... Again, the beauty beauty is because I don't have a really long, really long transmission like the original cars with their clutch. The the original cars had had a really cool multi-disc clutch at the back, at the very, very back of the car. But of course, because I don't have this long transmission taking up my space, I was able to put the radiator in the back. Um, On the original cars, the radiator was in the front. And then, of course, it had a pedal box. There's a, a fuel tank just above the pedal box. There's brake lines and fuel lines and rad hoses that are running from the front to the back. Like, it's, it's pretty intense. It's actually amazing. When, you, when I look at the original car, you know, stripped down naked, and I think that car weighed 960 pounds and all that stuff that they had to pack in there. And here I am with, you know, essentially a lighter, smaller engine, a smaller radiator, smaller this, smaller that. And I'm still coming in at 980 pounds without half the stuff that they had to put in there. Like either I went way too heavy or they're lying about their numbers. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's amazing. 960 pounds on those original cars and 190 horsepower. Yeah, it's unreal. Yeah. A lot of people wouldn't maybe think about the steering ratio. This car has to steer quick and with very little input. Yeah. So what did you do about that? Well, that was one of the things that I, of course, again, like I had learned, I had learned, you know, through trial and error on the Speedster about that kind of stuff. Cause the Speedster has a really quick steering for a street car has a really quick steering, but of course a race car needs to be even quicker than that. You need to be able to hold the wheel and not have to let go of it to make uh, a full left or a full right turn. And so in this car, I have, it's a full one and a half turns lock to lock from left to right. So three quarter left, three quarter right from center. So I searched up and found a small little rack. I think on eBay, found a small little aluminum rack, manual rack, essentially for like a ATV type, like a side-by-side. And then of course I need the, as I got into my suspension geometry and things, I needed the the ends of this rack to line up in a certain spot, right? So that all of the geometry was going to work properly. There's not going to be a bump steer and on and on and on. And so the rack is attached to the chassis. The pedal box then that I built is kind of semi-integrated into the rack. Um, it's hard to explain, but it's all, it's almost like one unit. As one comes out, the other comes out. In my mind, it's quite ingenious, <laughs> but Others might look at it and think it's pretty rudimentary. And you've got to mount that rack very solidly. I mean, you don't want anything coming apart. Right, yeah. The rack is mounted really well to the frame. And then again, the the pedal box bolts through the rack and into the frame as well. So it's almost all one unit. Let's talk about the suspension setup. Uh, Is it largely the same as the original car, A-arms and so forth? Yeah, your your lower lower upper control arms. Uh, I built the knuckles myself. I built the control arms myself. I built the rear uprights myself. All of that is DOM. The whole chassis is all DOM. Okay. So seamless, seamless drawn over mandrel tubing. At the time when I started the car, I didn't have a TIG welder. I didn't know how to TIG weld. 
I had only ever MIG welded. And so at the time I went with DOM because my thought was if I have to MIG weld this car, I can MIG weld DOM. Had I, had I known how to TIG weld at the time, I would have gone chromoly, of course. So I had, I had built the frame, had everything tacked together. And then at that point, I, I got a TIG welder and I started to teach, to teach myself how to use it. Because of course, you, like, I mean, they originally gas welded these, these chassis together. So when you look at them, they look like popcorn welds. Um, obviously, they held together, but like, this is still a modern, you know, even if it's not a race car, it's a show car, but this is still a modern car, right? You can't just popcorn weld this thing together. And so I, I learned to TIG weld this chassis. And so sadly for me, the, the welds, of course, I weld the top side and then you, you know, rotate the chassis and you rotate the chassis as you, as you go along. And so the welds get better and better as you get to the bottom of the car, which of course you'll never see because the good welds are, the nice pretty welds are all hidden. <laughs> so it's all strong. It's just the pretty stuff is all hidden, unfortunately. Uh, the wheels, are they genuine Barani wheels? No, because I have a family to support. <laughs> <laughs> good answer. <laughs> yeah. No, the wheels are not Baranis. I looked at that and the price of them blew my mind. Obviously, I would have loved to do that, but there are some things where you, you know, again, like I said, I'm an average guy with an average income and a young family. I need to, I, there are places you need to cut corners. It's still a replica. So where did you find the wheels? What uh, are, are they British? Yeah, they're British wheels. Um, again, just found through the internet. They came from Europe. Same with the tires. The tires are proper. Uh, our actual period Dunlop racing tires, they're the correct tires that that car would have had. And again, that was one of those areas where I had to go to my wife and be like, look, you're pretty awesome. I need you to be more awesome and be cool with this price I'm about to give you because you can't build a replica and not have the wheels and tires perfect. This is how much the tires cost. And they have to come from the UK. Like, I promise I will never burn them off. <laughs> <laughs> when, when I wear the tires off this car, I need to sell the car. <laughs> <laughs> Just between you and me, how much did they cost? I think you're 650 a tire. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you know, next time you could build maybe something, I don't know, something less exotic. That's the thing is like, well, the next time, hopefully I sell this car for enough money that I can pour my heart and soul and bank account into the next one. Right. Yeah. And that begs the question, how many offers have you gotten so far? Uh, I've had a few actually. It was funny because I along the build I had a couple inquiries. You know, um, Florida, Hungary, Malta. You know, all over the world. Some people had had messaged me about purchasing the car when it was finished and stuff. Uh, but really, when when I started posting pictures of the car painted when it was red and started actually putting the body panels on, that's when that's when really this everything kind of blew up and opportunities started kind of come out of the woodwork and offers are coming in and how much to buy that car. And, and I just tell people like, I'm not ready to sell it. Like it's not even finished yet. Like, yeah, someday. Yeah. Let me keep it for a few years. Yeah. Don't be in a hurry. Um, yeah. Someday, I, honestly, like someday when I, someday to sell this car, I would like it to go to the UK. I mean, that's really where, that's where the market for a vintage European race car is to see it in a collection, a proper collection you know, where it can be parked in a living room of somebody's estate. Like that's, that's where it needs to be. And, you know, I don't think most people are going to be bothered by the fact that it's not Ferrari powered. I, well, and that's, and that's the, that's the beauty of the car is that 
it's a race car. It's a vintage race car. These cars were built for racing. And then whether they won or lost, they were pushed aside for the next best thing. So these things were finished, you know, a couple of nights before they were being modified during a pit stop. The paint on these things was barely dry by the time they were racing on Sunday. So what I love about that is one, that's really cool. And two, there's a lot of room for error is not the right word. There's a lot of forgiveness in building a car like this because it doesn't have to be absolutely flawless because the originals weren't. If you look at the originals, they were hand hammered. They weren't run on an English over an English wheel. They were hand hammered. So they look perfect in these old 60s photographs. But if you saw that car in person and you look down in the sun, that's going to have tiny ripples through the whole bodywork, like, you know, small, tiny ripples, but they would be there. These were handmade. Ferrari built eight of these cars between 1961 and 1962 for racing. And of those cars, every single one, because they were handmade bodies, were slightly different. Some were up to six inches, eight inches shorter or longer than other ones. The chassis were all slightly different. The bodywork was slightly different. From race to race, they would add scoops and take scoops away, depending on you know how, where they were racing, how hot it was going to be, what the driver maybe complained about or, or wanted to improve. And so the cars were constantly changing. And I love that about them. The research is, is half the fun, kind of the hunting, the hunting and finding those little tidbits of information. That's a lot of fun. And again, in the end, I can replicate a car like this. And there is room for forgiveness when it comes to, well, you know, these welds don't look absolutely beautiful like you'd see on, uh, you know, a modern flawless race car or these body panels have some slight ripples in them. These were handmade by a team of craftsmen that were on a timeline. They were pushed to bang these things out as fast as possible. And, you know, the, the noses would get all ratched up and they would get hammered out the next week and then repainted and back out to the track or back out to a press day. So they're, they're not as flawless and perfect as people think that they are when they think of a, a modern Ferrari when you see it. These are race cars. And I love that about them. Oh yeah, for sure. We definitely romanticize all of it, but people would be surprised if they knew how the sausage was made. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, the other thing is uh, with regard to research, the thing about research is you begin to really appreciate the subject so much more. It brings the history closer to you. You almost feel like you're, you're inside the history at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like forming the bubbles, forming the bubbles over the intakes in the back and over the scoops in the back. I essentially did that exactly the same way they would have done it at the time. I built a small little pressure box, built a, just an MDF cutout essentially of the shape I needed, like a, a jig that fit over the pressure box. And between the pressure box and that jig, I put a piece of polycarbonate and put it in my wife's oven. Like clamped it all down, put it in my wife's oven and brought the air, brought a small air compressor inside. So I put this into my wife's oven and, you know, there was some testing, testing to find the right heat and the right, <laughs> the right rack to put it on. <laughs> Do I use convection or not? <laughs> uh, and then with a small hole in the pressure box, once it got up to temperature and it started to sag just enough, I'd pull it out quickly and use my air compressor and just put air into the pressure box. And of course it bubbles up the plastic to the size that I want. And you just sit there and keep the air consistent and it cools like that. 
well, now you've got your bubbles. So, you know, and then of course, let them cool, trim them out, you know, shape them to fit the body and on and on. I mean, that's, that's the similar process. I mean, that's ghetto, but it's the similar process to how they made noses for bombers in World War II. The, the bubbled noses, it's surely the same process they would have used to create those same bubbles on the original cars. Yeah. And once it's installed on the car and all finished, nobody has any clue that you used your wife's oven. That's right. That's right. And there were a lot of things like there was a lot of the car took four and a half years to build of that four and a half years. And I mean, this is evenings and weekends. I mean, I got a day job, Um, but there were a lot of that, a lot of that time where I stopped, I had to stop working on the car and just think there were certain points where I would get to where it was above me or beyond me. And I just, I had to kind of wait for the inspiration, I guess, like the flanges around those bubbles. And again, I don't know if I can explain this to make sense, but so I have a raw carbon body unpainted and I have these clear bubbles now that are cut to shape and have been the, the bottom of them has been sanded and fit to that body. I need to make, to make a flange that fits that bubble, that compound shaped bubble to that compound shaped body that is not going to ruin that bubble and not going to stick to or ruin that body because it's a separate piece. How am I going to get that perfectly matched profile to both pieces? And so I, I, I couldn't think of a way or same with the windshield flange, same idea. How do I get that to not stick to the windshield or the carbon, but be the perfect shape to fit them flawlessly, to fit both compound angles flawlessly. And so I, I couldn't figure it out. So I stopped working on the car for probably a month or a month and a half until I just essentially just hoping it came to me. And again, finally one day it did. I masking taped the body all around that area to protect it. And then the bubbles I sprayed with PVA, polyvinyl acetate. It's like a mold release. And so now I essentially have sprayed on a film. So I'm not going to damage the bubble with fiberglass or resin. And then I used a light silicone, some wax again, and a light silicone around that bubble in place to the car where I needed it. And then I essentially just built up chop strand fiberglass around that flange and, and really crude. Like it was really crude. There was no real way to mold it per se. Um, and so the piece that I was making was my piece. So then it's what you don't want to have to do with fiberglass, but then, you know, you build it up to the thickness that you want, try and get it as consistent as you want. And then when it's all done, you pop it all apart and then sand it, sand it, sand it, sand it, sand it, and get it to the finish that you want. And, and now it perfectly fits the body, perfectly fits the bubble. Nice. Yeah, I saw the photo series of that when you were, you know, problem solving and figuring that out. It's pretty, pretty interesting. And you're right. They do. F- it, it, I mean, they fit like a glove. Yeah, they're perfect. The fit is perfect. And, and there, I mean, in my mind, there is no other way that I could have done that. I don't know how else I would have done it. Like, right. I, like I said, I sat and thought about that for at least a month and a half. So you came to a point where you had more or less a finished car and now you've got to trust somebody to paint it. Yeah. Yeah. So the only thing I didn't do on the car myself was the paint. It was kind of hard for me to, I mean, once you get this far into a project that you've done a hundred percent yourself, I mean, you want to say I built this a hundred percent myself with my own two hands, you know, a little bit of help here and there when you need a second guy, but with your own two hands. And, and, but when it came to the paint, it was one of those things there's, 
you've got to know what you're good at. You've got to know what professionals can do that you cannot in the right kind of space. And, and paint is one of those things. There's just, there are certain things you just don't do. And, and the paint for me, that was one of them. And the paint color, is it Rosa Corsa? It's Rosa Chiaro 20R190. Okay. And that, and obviously that's what was on the original cars and the car carries racing number six. Yes. So because the cars were all slightly different because they were all handmade and because they changed from race to race, obviously not only in numbers, but in, you know, their scoops, uh, their, just the overall, the overall body work of the car configuration of the car, they changed from race to race. So it really came down to having to choose. And and I kind of figured this about halfway through the body. It came down to choosing one specific race, one specific chassis number, one specific driver in, you know, in that one race, because by the next weekend, the car might be different or the weekend before the car might be different. And so this car is number six. Uh, Ricardo Rodriguez drove this car at Pau, France, April 23rd, 1962. And so I had to, narrow it right down to that that car that driver that chassis number that date that race because otherwise you're really you're amalgamating like the initial build of this car you're amalgamating hundreds of different cars hundreds of different layouts and so when you get to the finer points like the scoops on the sides the number you're going to put on it and such i mean it really does come down to finding that one car, that one photograph or that one series of photographs, like this is the car that I am matching. So it's an interesting choice because I think some people would have automatically said, well, I'm going to do Phil Hill's car. I'm going to do Wolfgang von Tripp's car. Was it because the photographs were so good for that particular car on that particular date that that, that was kind of the deciding factor? Um, partly. Part of it, honestly, is I just, I like this, the 1962 side scoops, uh, engine scoops a little better, the longer. And also the fact that Setford in, in the UK, who's recreated two of these cars already, he's done the 1961 cars, the Phil Hill car and, and so on. And so I just, I obviously wanted to do something different that wasn't just, you know, making yet another one of, of the 1961 cars. And also the front on those cars, the 1962 cars, had a really interesting scoop right below the windshield. And and I just, there's something about the curves of that and how it kind of comes out of the bodywork seamlessly and, and comes around from a single scoop to a double outlet on against the windshield. There's something about that that I just, thinking about how they form that in aluminum did they form that in one piece? Did they lay it? Did they make it and then lay it over? Just the way it forms to the bodywork and also the windshield flange is just amazing to me. There was something about it in all the photos that I saw or could find of it. And so I really wanted to replicate that. And that was a, a feature of the 1962 cars. Of course, I made that in fiberglass because, because of the, the tight compounds of the backside of that scoop and how it returns down carbon without a vacuum bag was not going to give me that. So I did it in a chop strand car, uh, chop strand fiberglass, but that scoop, I believe it pulled air in and around the windshield, 
was the idea. And so these, these drivers with their open face helmets, of course, Ricardo Rodriguez always had his yellow helmet and goggles and open face. And so again, I, it makes sense that these drivers, as they complained about, you know, well, there's wind, wind in my face here, you know, or I'm getting too hot there. Right. And so as the drivers gave feedback, they, they changed the cars here and there. And this is, this is one of those changes that, that by 1962 kind of stuck with that year. And there's something about it. That's just, just so attractive. I'm not, I can't, I, again, I can't say exactly what it is, but to me, it's just, it's how it, how it comes up out of nowhere and seamlessly goes into what essentially is a separate piece. That windshield flange is a separate piece, but yet it's attached to both the windshield flange and the bodywork seamlessly, even in, even in aluminum like that, that to me, just the skill of those craftsmen, those early craftsmen just blows my mind. And they did this with hammers and wooden bucks. And that's amazing. Very cool. Little wizardry. All right, so the moment of truth comes and you drive the car for the first time. Well, you probably tested it a little bit. I mean, you certainly had bugs to work out, but how was it to drive finally? Uh, yeah, so I drove the chassis before any of the bodywork was even started. I drove the chassis to test it. Now, I should say I, I started this project thinking I'm going to make this car street legal because I've kind of pulled off a few other things in a kind of a gray area street legal-wise hence the Instagram handle. But my initial thought was, I'm going to make this car street legal. But then as I got you know, near the end, I thought, I'm going to have to add lights and fenders and things, even if I take them off after it's registered. It's just, how do you bolt that kind of stuff on and take it off without leaving evidence of it? And you know, it kind of butchers the car. So at that point, I was like, you know what? Screw it. This is, it's a show car, you know, exhibition type track car. Like, I'm not going to street this thing. But I can get a temporary in-transit permit for mechanical purposes. And because I'm the mechanic, again, it's kind of a gray area. So, so what I did to test this chassis, and of course this car is loud. Like this is the loudest, one of the loudest cars you've ever heard. It's actually mind blowing how loud this really is. And so a couple of friends and I, we took it out uh, with an in-transit permit out, you know, out here and to some side roads or whatever. And I'm expecting it to be kind of like, uh, kind of like the hot rods, the rat rods, you know, like they're, they're bumpy, they're loud, they're kind of, they're rough, you know, it's a good rough, yeah, they're raw, it's a good raw, but it's raw, you know, and I was blown away how smooth the car is, it's smooth, it's, the engine is smooth, the, the steering is amazing, like, the suspension is really impressive, like, I was expecting it to be hardcore racing suspension and and it is the geometry set up really well so it doesn't really roll or anything like that but i mean you can go over a manhole cover or you know bumps in the road and it's just beautiful it's like driving a like a new cadillac that really surprised me for being a home-built car i thought for sure it was going to kind of feel like yeah a little bit better version of the speedster but no it is it is worlds above and beyond it's it's amazing it's really impressive uh, and also the speed of the car, right? I'm not used to I'm not used to the power band of, let's say, a motorcycle engine, um, or a wet clutch, or a sequential gearbox like this, right? So that's been interesting. Even even now, even still, you know, getting used to that is has been really interesting. 
knowing that I can rev this thing right out. I mean, you bring this thing up to like 6,000 and I feel like, I feel like I'm redlining the heck out of it. Well, that's just where it wakes up. Like the power band wakes up at six in this car. And so that's kind of hard to get used to. Also the tires. I mean, this thing is still running these old vintage tires that really are basically pure plastic until you get them really hot, which again, I got kids to feed, so I can't afford to get these tires that hot (laughs) and burn them off. So, you know, so having to, having to control that power with, with these tires and things and, it's it's a lot to get used to actually but boy does it ever drive smooth it's it's really fun so have you been able to open it up i have not fully opened it up i've i've maybe done third gear in it wow wow i just imagine what waits beyond yeah yeah i'm kind of (laughs) scared Well, I think it'd be cool to get a professional driver behind the wheel and get an assessment. You know, you, you, obviously you have to be careful. You can't ring it out. It's one of one and you're not going to fix it if something happens. I mean, with yeah. the body, but, but yeah, it would be fun to get on a, on a track and see what, what it can do. Yeah. And, and they're building a new track here. They're, uh, we've been with Tyler racetrack for 10, 15 years now. And they're, they're, they just started digging on a new racetrack here last year so not far from me so i'm i'm hoping that when this track opens on kind of a, a vintage race day or you know opening weekend or something i'm i'm really hoping i get to go and exhibition or kind of debut there or something like that kind of be part of that that'd be a lot of fun well i think they absolutely need to invite you for opening day <laughs> and here's the thing is i'm people have asked me if i'm going to race the car and honestly like to, you know, to roll it around the track for the crowds and to hear the sound and see a car that they, they will never see like this in North America. To do that would be a lot of fun, but to actually race the car, I, I'm a builder. I'm not a driver. You know, there, it, it is separate. It is different. I would be afraid to put this thing into a wall. I love building them, but as far as driving them, I don't know. I don't think I could ever drive this car in anger. Do you ever just come out to the garage with a cold beer and sit and look at the car? Oh yeah, all the time. <laughs> like I, I just sometimes I just not even sometimes. Every time I open the door, like usually the car is covered, but when the car is not covered, I open the door. And constantly, the thought is, uh, "Who left this here? <laughs> like it doesn't it doesn't belong here." You know. You know, it's cool to me that your understanding and skill set of all of this probably rivals anyone who's doing this professionally i see i don't know if i would agree i don't know if i would say that what i would say is that i'm willing to take the risk of failure i suppose it's like it's like i've said before i was talking to a friend the other day that people will see the car and say oh wow you built this yourself like you're so talented well is it talent or is it skill there is a difference. And I would say that anybody can do this. I mean, I pulled this off in a little 22 by 22 garage. So the talent, the God-given talent that you can't really teach is the, is the eye. It's, it's my eye of being able to see this, look at a photo and be like, I can make that reality. I can tell that that guy's standing next to that, you know, the car comes here. Okay. Like that would mean this. And I can see the beginning from the end and, and picture it all the way along. That's the talent is to get the proportions right and not really have to try that hard at it. That's the talent. The rest is skill. The rest can be taught. And that's what I'm doing, right? I'm, I'm pushing myself to teach myself to take well, to work with composites and stuff and screw them up. I mean, 
But like I said, this car is built 50 and 100 bucks at a time. So anybody can do it. It, it might be harder for some than others. But if you've got the space, the time, the drive, and the tools, try it. Do it. I mean, this is the fifth or sixth car I've done from scratch. But, but I mean, you got to start somewhere. How many hours do you think you have in the build? I think I have about 2,600 hours in this car. Less than I Even, Evenings and weekends. Yeah. All right, you're gonna. You're probably not gonna want to answer this question. How much did it cost you? <laughs> I've been asked this question by a couple of people, and I always uh, say no. I won't divulge. I wouldn't either. <laughs> the car exceeds whatever dollar amount you've put into it. It's it, it's worth far far more, in my opinion. I mean, it is absolutely a work of art. Well, Brandon Hegedus, thanks for coming on and telling us the story of your Ferrari Tipo One Five Six replica. I'm super impressed by this whole thing, and I, I had a lot of fun talking to you today. Thanks for sharing it with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I love podcasts, so it's kind of fun to be part of one. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. If you like what you've heard, follow the podcast, click that five-star rating, and don't forget to leave me a review. All of those things will help me reach more gearheads like you. And if you want to support the show another way, you can click on the link in the show notes, and that'll take you to my page at buymeacoffee.com, which is just a new way to support creators online. Until next time, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.